Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here with a quick note. In this episode, you'll hear me describe a special meditation, a Buddhist Tonglen meditation, that my integral colleague, Namali Pereira, led for the people of Ukraine. I asked her to re-record it for you, which she has done, and it is posted on my daily Evolver website and YouTube under the title, Contacting and Heartening Ukraine. I encourage you to try it out. All right. Well, hey, folks, Jeff Salzman here. It is Friday, March 4th, 2022. And uh, you can find all my stuff at thedailyevolver.com. All right. So today, what I'd like to do is continue to look for the third week in a row at what is going on with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and to try to see it more deeply through the lens of cultural development, which I think is, you know, as I listen and read and see all of the various pundits and so forth, I still think that the, the, the sense of cultural development and the movement of history, you know, the evolution of consciousness is at least a, a key piece of what we can look at to you know, better get our heads and arms around this epochal struggle. So this is the week that it got really ugly. The Russians have been shelling several cities. Last night, they hit a nuclear power plant Apparently today it's taken over, you know, residential areas, hospitals, refugees, you know the story. It's very upsetting. It's depressing. Uh, it's alarming. And so the question is, what do we do? Is there some way that integral consciousness, as best as we can conjure it, conjure it gives us any insight into how to deal with it? And I think it does. Uh, to start, one of the things that is you know, fundamental to an integral sensibility, and certainly to my own, I'll put it that way, is the integration of the spiritual and even the mythic and magic stages of our own development. And that is often exercised by something other than the head. You know, it has to be exercised by the heart. It has to be exercised by the gut. And so what I think we can do at Integral that it's hard to do at various, you know, think tanks and the establishment and the modern world is we can consciously feel it and, um, and use our feelings as a portal to connect with the people who are in the actual thick of it. And I have learned this more and more. Uh, one, one of my main teachers is my dear friend, Namali Pereira, who told me something a few weeks ago that uh, it really stuck with me. And she said, I don't trust anything. My instincts, my analysis, I don't trust any of it until I feel into the pain of what's actually going on and the suffering of the people involved. The victims, the fighters, the perpetrators, that's a, something that we can actually 
endeavor to do in non-local space. And to that end, I guess, was a, I guess it was a day before yesterday, Namali led a prayer for Ukraine on integral life. It was on, a, a, they don't um, record these because they want them to be spontaneous and for people to participate and so forth. But keep an eye on this sort of thing. Uh, and it was wonderful. It was an hour and a half of prayer and poetry and Tonglen practice, Buddhist practice. And, um, you know, it taps into the time-honored ways that human beings have dealt with the sort of existential tragedy of life. And that is to appeal to God for intercession, divine intervention. In Buddhism, we want to actually contact the suffering of other people and don't use our own suffering to shut that down. And Namali led a beautiful Tonglen meditation, which is basically the idea of breathing in the suffering of other people and breathing out relief, simple enough. And she is going to uh, record a Tonglen session. And I'm gonna post it up here on the Daily Evolver and so forth. So I would encourage you to do it. It was very helpful to me. And it was helpful to me, um, not because it soothed me, although it did, but because I also believe and felt into the way that it soothes the situation and that other people, that the people, again, in the thick of it find themselves in. And there is, you know, in integral, we could take this seriously, this amorphic field of collective consciousness that we're all part of in non-local space. And I know, and I thought about this for myself, that if I were in the situation of being under attack and bombed and the terror and confusion and pain and all of that, I would want to know that not only were there people in the world who were upset and alarmed and depressed about that and, and maybe even working on it, but I would take great comfort in knowing that they were trying to contact me and hold me in a morphic space. That would hearten my heart. So it's like a friend and I, were, we were having a, a, a distraught conversation about this on the phone and both realized that we don't want to be soothed, <laughs> you know, unless uh, we can participate in the soothing of the whole catastrophe, if you will. So sensitizing ourselves to the suffering is a way of uh, making us worthy of then analyzing the um, situation. And so I'm gonna move into that part now. You know, I guess maybe the simplest way of looking at this Ukraine situation is that it is a contest in the latest and long and many bloody contests between modern and pre-modern sensibilities. So, um, you know, we have the warrior stage, we have the uh, traditionalist stage, so the warrior being more the empire stage and, you know, the Genghis Khan kind of get territory stage. And then the traditional stage, God and country, the modern stage, scientific, rational. We have the postmodern stage, which is in some ways the sensitivity to suffering that, and to the people who are usually left out of history. 
you know, the victims and bringing that in. So in an integral space, we want to feel all of that. And we can see this conflict as, you know, a contest between modern and pre-modern in the warring parties themselves, Russia being certainly led in this moment from a pre-modern sensibility, the autocrat uh, sensibility of Putin and maybe diluted sensibility of Putin at this point, the more modern sensibility of the Ukrainians. And it's like Zelensky said to the EU, if nothing else from this conflict, I think it has become clear to you that we are like you, we are European. And that's interesting because, you know, it clarifies, um, you know, a definition of modernity that I think integral theory uh, holds. And that is that we grow in these stages in basically three realms of reality. One being first person, and that is our own consciousness, our own way of explaining the world and seeing ourselves. There's a modern way of seeing oneself that I myself am sovereign. I don't bend the knee to anybody. You know, I'm a free agent, I'm here to express myself. There's a second person modernity where I respect other people and their rights to do the exact same thing, even if I disagree with it. That's not a pre-modern sensibility. A pre-modern sensibility is I gotta whip them into shape. I gotta get them in line with my thinking. But no, in modernity, everybody gets to, you know, pursue their own happiness. And then there's third person. And that is the world of its, the world of technology. And modern technology is unfortunately, and this is a sour spot in history, we've seen it from the Nazis and we're seeing it again now, that a sour spot in history is when you have a, 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 a modern technology in the hands of a pre-modern sensibility. Because a pre-modern sensibility is about conquest, it's about, you know, killing, all of that stuff again, subjugating, it's part of the deal. That's even healthy in a sense at that stage. But when you have modern weaponry, it's, you know, we're seeing, I think in human history, one of the last gasps of that, but damn, is it brutal and horrible to experience. So I would say that one of the things that um, we're seeing in this struggle between modernity and pre-modernity, if you will, is that the modern world has really come together astonishingly well. From NATO, the, the EUs, how the refugees are being handled, oh my God, compared to World War II, it's um, just amazing. The three years they, the refugees get to live in the EU, the way they've been welcomed, um, Erin Burnett in CNN did a story where she went to Ukraine and traveled with the refugees to Poland. And um, of course, everybody was freaked out and everybody was, um, you know, there, there was panic in, in, in various ways, but they were basically a bunch of modern people who were, you know, looking at their phones and milling around and standing in line and uh, welcomed and given uh, food and uh, just an amazing Again, the modern world coming together, Switzerland, the banks, the UN resolution, 
all the multinational companies who are abandoning Russia. Anonymous, the, um, the group of hackers, that sort of a loose association of hackers who have turned their attention to, to screwing up Russia in the cyber war, chasing the oligarchs in their yachts, you know, shutting them out of the modern world. And um, of course, I don't think, you know, and I think that most people didn't, don't think that Putin really expected that. And it's been, that's been heartening. It's one of the things, um, one of my favorite columnists, Ross Douthat, he wrote about this in the New York Times in an article called, What's the End Game in Ukraine? And, uh, you know, here he puts it in sort of cold, hard geopolitical terms. He says, let's start with a very cold sounding observation. The first week of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine has been the best week for American grand strategy in a long time. Okay, in a little bit, he says, before the invasion, the United States faced the following set of challenges. First, we had a Ukraine in a tacit client state, but not a formal ally, to which we had committed just enough support to make it a tempting target for Russian aggression, but not enough for, for sound strategic reasons to actually protect it. We had a set of formal allies, our friends in Western and Central Europe that were economically dependent on Russian resources and less than eager to shoulder new military burdens. And we faced a near, super, a near superpower rival, China, whose growing Pacific ambitions require American resources and attention, both of which were tied up by our inability to hand off our responsibilities to Europe. And on and on, he says. Um, and that's, um, I think a, a reasonable view, and I think it's a mainstream view. I think I've said this before, but I've been very impressed with a lot of the commentary in, in mainstream um, news. I've been, th is, this story is what 24 hour news is made for. One of the indispensable shows, I think, at this point is Morning Joe, an old favorite of mine that I'd gotten very, very weary of as they sort of found their way through the culture wars. But now this is a real war. And Joe Scarborough, who's the host, is he was a Republican. He's now not a Republican. He's, you know, he has a great in integral sensibility, in my opinion. And the show, especially in its third hour, is uh, it's a morning show. In its third hour, they're interviewing people on the ground. They're, they're in the situation where they have the senator on one line and the general in the other saying, the senator is saying that the Stinger missiles are arriving. Have they been arriving, general? And, you know, so it's actually, you know, they're, they're doing way what would be spycraft in earlier times. So, yeah, so one of the... Uh, things I'd like to share today is a video that I think has really, it's really hit me. It's, it's a video of a woman, a young mother. She's a mother of two. Her name's Alia Chandra. And she is fleeing Ukraine to go to Germany to give her kids to their grandparents. And then she's going back to fight. And so this is her interview. And she's just a regular mom. And you can hear what she has to say, very impressive to me. And uh, I'll just play a couple snippets here. 
I am so angry at what is happening. I am so angry at this insane lunatic who has invaded our country for his insane ideas, his demands to basically abandon our sovereignty in order to become an appendage of Russia, which is something that Ukraine will never accept. And then so they ask her then, um, you know, what are you seeing about the Ukrainian people that is arising and new? This is her answer. And this is what really hit me between the eyes. I think also a sense of unity, a sense of willingness to die for your freedom. Yeah, I think it is. You know, it's, I think that Ukraine has fundamentally un- understood that it's better to die than to live on your knees. And this is what, what we're going to, this is what, what we're doing basically now. Isn't that amazing? Better to live on your feet than die on your knees. And um, it's, it's, you know, testimony to how when we reach a modern stage of development, it's not like that warrior thing is gone. It's been suppressed. It's been put in shadow. But that warrior credo of today is a good day to die. You just do because, you know, that's available to you. The, The veil between life and death, death is thinner. And for a modern woman, this is a mother. She's got two kids. It's not, you know, she's not being whipped up by war cries or war drums. She's not no deep calling of God like Joan of Arc. You know, these earlier things that you sort of wrap around and we think this is what takes us to war. But no, just the, the, the real-time realization of a modern woman that I'm not going to live on my knees. That's surprising to me in a way and very heartening to me. And I feel it too. You know, I don't know how I would do. I think I'd last about five minutes, but I get it that I'm not going to live on my knees either. And so we could, I think we could take heart in that and, 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 and you know, as, a, as integral practitioners feel into that ourselves. Um, I have to share this one photo too. Uh, there's another one that just has really in a way haunted me. And I think one of the reasons that modern people are identifying with this, with the Ukrainians here. And for those of you who are listening, I'll describe it. Oh my God, this photo wrecks me. So this is an older woman, probably in her late 50s, early 60s. She's wearing a nice coat. She's got nice scarves on. She's got makeup on. She's got her hair done. And she is leaning up against some barricade uh, with panic on her face her head in her hands, uh, looking ahead, you know, trying to figure it out. Just can't believe she's there. So somebody's grandmother, somebody's great aunt, you know. And the the kicker is she's holding a little dog. She's holding a little dog who's wearing a little red outfit. And, um, you know, again, it it hits this, the the chords of, of the modern sensibility. And I, I think actually, I, I hate to say this in a way, and I sort of in a way wonder about my own moral sensibilities uh, when I realize how powerful it is to think about the pets. You know, I, I heard an interview with uh, a guy yesterday. I've been listening to so many, I forget where, where it happened, but it was a Ukrainian young man. He was a computer programmer, you know, and he was fleeing and, and he said, um, they asked him, um, why are people staying? And he said, they're staying because of their pets often. And I get that, <laughs> you know, these 
pets are people too. With a lot of moral development happening around the um, human relationship with animals. But that is, uh, you know, it's a powerful, again, another powerful portal into what, what's going on here. This is another excerpt from the young mother, Alia. So the question that's been asked of her is, how long is this going to go on? How, can you, how long can Ukraine stand up against this? And here's her answer. I'm sure that Ukraine will win. The question is how many civilian victims there has to be, how much destruction there has to be before the West finally understands that you can't stand aside, that it's not really only a Russian-Ukrainian conflict, that Vladimir Putin has declared a war against civilization itself. Well, that about sums it up. You know, uh, this will last as long as the West thinks it can stomach it. And... Um, I'm not sure that's wrong. And, and one of the things that's, of course, new about this, for those of us who are looking for new emergence in evolution, is this This is not only the first war that's covered by television, well, that was Vietnam, and it was very consequential that television covered it, because it got in, you know, the horror of it got in to the American psyche. But this is the first war that's being covered by the postmodern third person media. And um, so we can literally watch it. We can hear points of view. We can see the actual experiences of these people. And, um, you know, it's every single one of them is a story. You know, this is her story. She's a journalist. She's a mother. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, we'll see how much of this we can take. We don't know yet. Okay, another video I wanted to share is, so if we talk about this being a struggle between modernity and pre-modernity, uh, I think we have to look at the pre-modern side of the street too. And this is, um, of course, Putin, Vladimir Putin. And um, he has this mythic idea of a greater Russia and um, it has been, you know, it's mixed in with religion and church and this idea of Russianness. And of course, the loathing of multiculturalism and Western values and pop culture and, you know, the need to protect it. And this is always traditionalism's argue, argument against modernity is that modernity wants to wring the soul out of a people. And it does, actually. Now, you know, evolution doesn't stop at modernity, fortunately. And integral, we can see that, hey, we want actually both of these things. We want a mythic truth about ourselves and our place in history and our people. And we also want to be rational. We want to be knitted into the world. But, um, but this is Putin. And this is actually, you know, there's a, there's, there's, um, a lot of talk about how Putin has gotten into the autocrat trap where he can't get out now and he is in an echo chamber. And of course, the famous picture of him sitting in the table 30 feet away from his ministers. I mean, he is deluded in the way that people get deluded when they don't have enough input. Uh, but the other thing that I think is important to note is he was always a Russian traditionalist. And this is, um, so I'm going to share this clip. This is from an interview of Putin 23 years ago, when he first was made 
the president of Russia, and he's being interviewed by Tom Brokaw. And Tom Brokaw asks him to talk about something that Putin rarely talks about, and that's his family. And so Tom Brokaw asks him about his kids, his daughters, and what he wants for them. And here's Putin's answer, 23 years ago, younger Putin here. You have two young daughters. What kind of country will they be living in 20 years from now? I would hate to see my country, Russia, lose its identity, its face. What I would like to see that the cultural roots of Russia that we're so proud of and we so love, that form us as people, shape us as people, be preserved with all due respect to the common values of our world. I would like to see my children see themselves as Russians. So isn't that interesting? That's not a modern answer. <laughs> a modern answer would be, oh, I want my daughters to be happy. You know, it's the answer we all give. I want my daughters to live in a free and prosperous society. I want them to be whoever they want to be and the best that they can be. No, that's not what Putin had to say. He says, I want my daughters, to, I want my children to be Russian. I want my children to see themselves as Russians, what he says. There's a cultural root of Russia that we're so proud of, that we love, that form us as people. And we want to, res we want to respect the context of modern, well, I'm not so sure. But uh, the preserving that Russianness is the key to it. And that's always the traditional view, the, the traditional sensibility, the pre-modern sensibility, that mythic, um, where you feel the history of, where you, you feel the, history of your people, you know, blowing in the fields and forests, and the triumphs and humiliations of your history, and your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and the ancestors in memorial who have worked and fought and died. That's a, there's a liquid louche, there's a liquid connection that you have with them. And of course, from an integral perspective, uh, we want that. We want that Russianness to be part of a more integrated world. We don't want modernity to wring all of that out so that we become soulless technocrats. That's, you know, both the right and the left have that grudge against modernity, and it's appropriate. From an integral perspective, we want to make sure we appreciate the amazing, unbelievable, spectacular gifts of modernity, but this is the cost of it. And this is where he doesn't want to go. So there's that Russianness, you know, we want the church, all that good stuff. And there's a Ukrainianness. I was so touched by the opening of Saturday Night Live, where they had the, I think it's called the Duma Chorus in New York City. It's a Ukrainian chorus. And they sang a prayer for the Ukraine, beautiful song, uh, probably 20 people in this chorus. And they wore the traditional head dresses and clothing. And every culture has that, you know, and we want all of that back. You know, we want in the sacred world to come, we want it all. Chineseness, Russianness, you know, I, I think of my own version of it. Growing up in, you know, kind of redneck Western Pennsylvania, traditionalist, wasp, uh, um, uh, Protestant, uh, farmers. And, you know, I, I, I know that quick, what quickens my heart is that version, and this is a traditional verse, so always some version of home and hearth. 
and God and country and mom at the, in the kitchen cooking dinner and grandma holding the baby by the fire and dad fixing the roof and brother walking up the path with his dog and a fresh rabbit that they killed. And very Huck Finn, you know, very much that smiling boy with the missing tooth and the straw hat. And I think of my old aunts in their aprons, you know, and all very practical. And, you know, I think about my grandmother and the, 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 it's funny, the, the image that's almost taboo for me to think about is any image of my grandmother in slacks. Never, never, always a dress always stockings, actually. She even wore little heels. She was a country lady, but they were working to be modern. You know, they wanted to, to move into the modern world in a sense, but they were you know, deeply traditional. Uh, but, um, you know, but now everybody's running around in pants, men and women, and they're making money and they're leaving home. And is that better than this home and hearth thing? And the answer is yes. <laughs> It is in many, so many, many ways better. People are more free. The old fashioned, you know, that's all of that stuff is becomes embarrassing, kind of small minded, constrictive. You see sort of the uncouth aspects of it. That's, you know, I saw that. I knew I was going to leave home when I was six. But, you know, from an integral perspective, we want to bring that back. And so uh, this, this is where we can uh, sort of sympathize with Putin and with the great possibly majority of Russians who believe, who are with him, not just because they are hearing the official story, but a great part of it is that, you know, this is one of the great things about modernity is it's not just one view, all views are allowed. Contending views are in the system. The, the power is deconstructed. So that we have a balance of powers. Uh, and could you imagine this war happening if there was the kind of free speech in Russia as there is in the West? I can't. No, they don't, they don't want to do this. This is uh, Putin's fever dream and the fever dream of uh, Alexander Dumas and some of his uh, gurus. And, um, you know, the vast majority of Russian people wouldn't want to do it simply because of the costs that they're about to experience. But a lot of them get it in their heart. And I, I saw a, a series of interviews with, it was a kind of a man on the street. Do you support this war? Do you support Putin? And person after person, yes, I do. I support my president, you know. So there's, there it is, you know, a lot's going on. This, this battle of traditional and, I'm sorry, modern and pre-modern not just the two countries, but the, within the countries. Both of those countries have that strata and they are at war. We can find that strata within ourselves. It's often at war. But one of the big differences between pre-modern and modern is in the pre-modern system, a great leader is the leader who imposes his vision, his or her vision on people and events. That's how they judge themselves. It's their job to suppress dissent. It's their job to uh, you know, conquer people who are, are different and to bend events to their will. The Triumph of the Will, the great documentary about Hitler. So you know, that's not modern. The modern leader 
you know, the idea is I trust my people's judgment. I want them to exercise their will, get out there and free associate and create, and let's all have a good time doing it. You know, we'll be stronger for it that way. And that's true. And, uh, you know, I love this Zelensky. How about him, huh? You know, this is a great, uh, another great quote from him is he, he, he was, they were asking him about being present. And he said, one thing is I, I don't want anybody hanging my picture in your office. He says, hang the pictures of your kids in your office and think about them whenever you make a decision. That's the difference uh, or one of the differences between the modern and pre-modern and what we're seeing in um, Arise here. Okay, um, I guess there's a couple other things I might say, but I see that I'm getting over time here and there's more to come, unfortunately. And uh, I hope we can, um, you know, respond to it in a way that is intelligent and um, wise. And, um, and I think so far Biden is doing that. And, um, you know, getting in, involved militarily, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, uh, I, at some point I realized that don't know mind is probably the best place to be. And I noticed my mind wanting to contract around ideas and opinions and so forth, but I just don't know right now. And I, I don't know that anybody does, but we have to make decisions. And so we pray for the people who make the decisions and ask God to guide them, you know, and uh, as best we can feel into the, their morphic space and the non-local connections we have with everybody and, and do our best to, um, you know, bring wisdom, love, compassion, to the system. All right. Okay, folks. Well, thank you for listening or watching. Take care, Chip Salzman signing off. <laughs>